This is a broadcast of Holland United Church of Christ. At Holland UCC, we seek to open the mind and engage the heart. We are a community of justice, peace, and affirmation in Holland, Michigan, where everyone is welcome to the table. Holy Gospel according to Matthew 5, Matthew 5, 38 to 48. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist an evildoer. But if anyone strikes you on the right cheek, turn the other also. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your coat, give your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go also the second mile. Give to everyone who begs from you, and do not refuse anyone who wants to borrow from you. You've heard that it was said you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. So that you may be children of your creator in heaven, for she makes the sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your siblings, what more are you doing than others? Do not even Gentiles do the same. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly creator is perfect. For the word of God in scripture, for the word of God among us, for the word of God within us. Thanks be to God. Now many workplaces, perhaps even your own, have a designated lunch area. Often there's a the sink, little kitchenette situation, and a refrigerator, which is usually a community fridge. Well, things can go wrong with community fridge situations. <clears throat> I remember once in an office I was working at, there was someone who liked to bring, on occasion, fish for lunch, which is fine. But fish has trouble keeping itself to itself sometimes. And I don't like fish, and I don't need the smell of your lunch getting into mine. Or maybe somebody leaves food or stuff in there for too long, right? Clean it out already. Well, I was reading about one uh, such situation in the, quote, community fridge. The person writes, someone in my office would always crush lunches with his gigantic lunchbox. Either he ate bricks or lead, I don't know. But I always came to the office fridge and found that my lunch was smashed into pieces. I guess they put theirs on top. So after three bouts of this and numerous notes from myself and other colleagues, one day I carefully removed his lunchbox, emptied the contents, which included a gigantic sandwich, a Twinkie, chips, some veggies, and a few other bits. I took them out to the parking lot you can guess what happens next. And ran them over with my car. I carefully packed it back in, put it in the lunchbox, and set it back in the fridge. Some of you are taking notes. I think. So did this work? Well, the person began keeping their lunch in a separate cooler from then on. <laughs> So success, I guess. Okay. 
Now we hear a story like that and we kind of grin and we're even like, yeah, that was awesome. I wish I had thought of that. Right? We get a certain uh, satisfaction right, from the idea of taking revenge or, or getting payback. Some of the most popular TV shows and movies are centered on stories of epic revenge. Whether it's Rick, Michonne, and Daryl against the governor, or Negan in The Walking Dead, or Beth Dutton getting revenge on basically everyone in Yellowstone, or Daniel LaRusso against Johnny Lawrence, right? We find ourselves cheering along. Get him! And of course, it's often the season finale of a show or the very end of a movie, right? When whatever the conflict is comes to a climax and vengeance finally is attained. And we're munching our popcorn, we're on the edge of our seat. And when the credits come on, we set down our Diet Coke and we turn to each other and we say, that was awesome. Well, just me. <laughs> and, there's a, and there's a reason for this, right? Certain neural pathways in our brain are activated when we perceive that revenge is happening and we get a sort of dopamine hit. It feels good. Helps with the ratings, too. So we are physiologically wired, at least to some degree, for revenge. And when evolutionary biologists Martin Daly and Margot Wilson looked at data in 60 different societies from around the world, they said, what our survey suggests is that the inclination to revenge is experienced by people in all cultures. So perhaps there was an evolutionary advantage at some point along the way to this hardwiring. Revenge maybe was a deterrent for would-be aggressors from committing acts of aggression against our human ancestors. Early humans were group-living creatures who lived, worked, and ate in the presence of others, and a lot of their actions would be public and perceived by others, and if someone was taken advantage of, and didn't respond appropriately, others might say, hey, there's someone that we can all take advantage of. And it wouldn't be to your advantage not to defend yourself, get revenge, etc. Well, a group of Swiss researchers wanted to know what happens uh, in the brain when someone takes revenge. So they scanned the brains of people who had just been wronged during a game in the lab. None of us likes to get wronged in a game, so at least. <clears throat> you haven't played a game with me. <laughs> the researchers then gave the wrong participant a chance to punish the other person, and for a, vo a full minute as the victims contemplated revenge, the activity in their brains was recorded. And immediately, uh, researchers noticed a rush of neural activity in the part of the brain known to process rewards. We sort of already talked about that, and the study found that in the moment, revenge is quite rewarding. However, they wanted to know more. Does revenge keep rewarding? And so it turned out that even though the first few moments feel rewarding in the, in the brain, scientists found that instead of quenching hostility, revenge prolongs the unpleasantness of the original offense because participants would focus on and ruminate about both the transgressor and the original transgression even more, right? You're not letting it go, right? You keep living in it longer. 
or as Francis Bacon put it over 500 years ago, a man that studieth revenge keeps his own wounds green, which would otherwise heal. So revenge is satisfying up to a point. Now in ancient times, they developed a law or rule to try to limit vengeance called lex talionis, and that literally meant law of retaliation. And we heard Jesus reference in Old Testament or Hebrew scripture uh, version of that, which we find in Leviticus 24, which says anyone who injures their neighbor is to be injured in the same manner. Fracture for fracture, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. The one who has inflicted the injury must suffer the same injury. So this was designed to limit the revenge response, right? It permitted violence, but not an escalation of the violence. No more was to be exacted than what had been taken, no more than an eye for an eye or a tooth for a tooth. But interestingly, researchers from the State University of New York found that when people in a study were able to exact vengeance, they believed that their own actions had achieved equity and restored balance to the relationship or made things right. However, when they were the recipients of revenge, in equivalent scenarios, they always felt the response was over the top and more than what was warranted. Well, I just made things even, but man, did you see what they did? And so, uh, even the law of retaliation designed to limit revenge, I think, fails because human perception naturally slants things in our favor and against our perceived aggressors. See any history book for countless examples of this. And Gandhi, a Hindu who was not a convert to Christianity, but was a convert to Jesus' way of nonviolence, famously put it this way, right? An eye for an eye, and the whole world goes blind. And so Jesus, as we've been seeing throughout the Sermon on the Mount, calls us to a higher ethic. He says, you've heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist an evildoer. If anyone strikes you on the right cheek, turn to them the other also. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your coat, give your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go the second mile. And at first blush, right, it feels like Jesus is calling us to roll over, to be doormats. Now, the word translated resist there, and it says do not resist an evildoer. The word resist there is used also to describe the violent clash of armies on a battlefield where violence would happen, blood would be shed, and people would often die. So what Jesus is really saying is don't respond to violence with violence. But he is, I believe, giving us creative ways to non-violently resist. And Walter Wink has done excellent work on outlining how this is so. And he coined the term third way to show that Jesus is giving us options beyond the classic binary of fight or flight. And so Jesus is saying, don't use violence, but if someone turns, if someone strikes you on the right cheek, turn to him the other cheek also. We might say, well, what's so creative about that? It sounds like an invitation to be a punching bag. Well, what people knew in the first century was that the only hand which could be used for public gesturing was the right hand. The left hand was reserved for unclean 
purposes. And Jesus didn't have to explain that to them. They understood it. And so if someone was going to hit you, they would have to use the right hand. And if someone was going to hit you on the right cheek with the right hand and you're facing them, how would they, what kind of hit would they have to do? Right? The cheek, the right cheek would be on the opposite side facing. So it would have to be a backhand, and that's the kind of strike you would do towards someone inferior to you. It's the way a master would hit a slave or a Roman, a Jew that was intended to humiliate. And Jesus says, if someone treats you this way, don't get violent. Offer them the left cheek as well. Well, if you're going to get hit on the left cheek, using the right hand, it would have to be a slap or a punch. And that is the way that you would hit an equal. And you could be fined for striking an equal, but you're also getting the person to acknowledge, if they do that, that you are at their level. Right? You're shifting the consciousness of the aggressor, potentially. Then Jesus says, if anyone forces you to go one mile, go a second mile. A Roman soldier could compel a civilian to carry his pack. These often weighed about 70 pounds, and they could compel you to do that for one mile and go farther. If they were caught doing that, making you go farther, their superior could punish them. And so Jesus says, if someone makes this demand of you, just keep walking. Right? Put the soldier in the ridiculous position of begging you to give the pack back before you get into trouble. In other words, up the ante on the bad behavior with the goal of getting it to stop and maybe getting the perpetrator to see what it is they're doing. Or as Richard Rohr put it, create your own loving set of rules which might blow the system apart. And so Jesus calls us to end the cycle of violence with creative means. A CPA who had heard this teaching on this passage about finding a third way began to think about ways in which some clients would ask him to do things that weren't exactly ethical. And he felt caught in the middle, right? He didn't want to lose clients for his accounting business, but also didn't want to do anything illegal, anything that would get himself in trouble, and try to think about how can I creatively respond to these requests. And one day a client came into his office and suggested something that he felt was shady. And so the CPA said, before I do something like that, I'll need you to put the request in writing and please sign and date it. <laughs> and they didn't ask for that again. Right? So instead of just simply saying no, right, made the other person <clears throat> There's also the example of the person whose neighbor put in a very bright yard light that was shining into her window. And she asked the neighbor to turn it off, to re-aim the light, or simply dim it, and she got a very negative reaction from her neighbor. So she got creative. She put up a parabolic mirror pointed directly at the neighbor's bedroom, and she used an old projector dowser, which is thing that would go in front of the projector light beam to blacken it and figured out a way to mechanically have it at varying intervals black the light out. And so the end result was a beam of randomly blinking light right into the neighbor's bedroom window. And when the neighbor then complained about this, she let him know that it was his light source shining into his window and all he had to do to stop it was turn off his own light. 
It's pretty creative. It's pretty creative. I do feel like there's a little bit of revenge in there. You still get that dopamine hit, but it's also nonviolent. So I, I don't know. That's, that's, that's maybe next level. I don't know. I really don't know. But Jesus says we're not to respond to violence with violence. And then Jesus turns to the heart, as he often does. And it says, you've heard that it was said you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Theologian Paul Nuchterlein calls this the most important passage in the Bible. Richard Rohr calls this the most radical, demanding, and truthful of all of Jesus' teachings. Rohr says, until there is love for enemies, there's no real transformation because the enemy always carries the dark side of your own soul. If you greet only your brother or sister, what's so great about that? If we stay inside our religious and ethnic groups and circles, wars and racism continue. That's just staying inside a kind of magnified self-love. Until you can love the outsider, the other, and even the enemy, Jesus is saying, you really haven't loved at all. And it's one thing to think about situations like the work fridge, or a yard light, or even an ethical business practice, and maybe those are some ways for us to start. But we're called to go, of course, much deeper and into situations that are much, much harder. So hard that we might call them impossible. Our poem this morning, written in 2015, as we noted, ended by referencing the awful events of June 17, that year in which mass shooter and white supremacists still in roof took the lives of nine African-American people in a Bible study at a historic African-American, African Methodist Episcopal Church in Charleston. And the relatives of the people slain inside that church were able to speak directly to the accused gunman at his first court appearance. And one by one, the families who chose to speak did not turn to anger. Instead, while he remained impassive, they offered him forgiveness and said that they were praying for his soul. I forgive you, Nadine Collier, the daughter of seven-year-old Ethel Lance said at the hearing, her voice breaking with emotion. You took something very precious from me. I will never talk to my mom again. I will never, ever hold her again. But I forgive you. And I have mercy on your soul. I can't imagine the pain those families felt. I can't imagine the anger they must have felt. And the desire for vengeance in a case like that is natural. It's what even seems right. A response of love seems abnormal and certainly impossible. And perhaps it's for that reason that we need to be converted converted to this way of nonviolence and love of enemies. And Jesus, as we know, didn't just talk this way. He lived it. As we heard earlier, even in the moment Jesus is being arrested, he tells Peter to put his way his sword. 
And later, as he's on the cross being tortured, mocked, and put to death, he says, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. And so our theology of the cross must show that the cross is not about God needing violence in order to forgive us. No, the cross is the revelation that God already loves us and that that love is rooted and grounded in nonviolence. If your theology requires God to kill Jesus or have others kill Jesus to carry out a plan of salvation, it might be time to look for some new theology. As Brian Robinette put it, by raising Jesus from the dead, God has served justice to an innocent victim while unmasking the guilt of his accusers and murderers. Instead of acting within the parameters of reciprocity where this is met with an equivalent that, God's gift of the risen victim floods the banks of our limited imaginations in a gesture of superabundance. And so Jesus said, you are to be perfect like your heavenly creator is perfect. And what that means is that we too are to have boundlessness of heart toward others, even and maybe especially those hardest to love. Rene Girard said the kingdom of God means the complete and definitive elimination of every form of vengeance and every form of reprisal in relation between human beings. And this is critical because we now have the means to, de to destroy ourselves and our planet with weapons of mass destruction as well as a global economy bent on consuming the earth. 2,000 years ago, God intervened in our history to give us the only ultimate way to peace. This time, says Gerard, it will take conversion to save us. Evolution will come too late. Either we learn this way of non-retaliatory forgiveness that even loves our enemies, or we will destroy ourselves. Martin Luther King Jr. put it this way. It is no longer a choice, my friends, between violence and nonviolence. It is either nonviolence or non-existence. I believe today, he says, that there is a need for all people of goodwill to come with a massive act of conscience and say in the words of the old spiritual, we're going to study war no more. Amen. invited to join us for worship on Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. streaming on Facebook. You can also watch these messages on the Holland UCC YouTube channel. And for more information, how to get involved, or to support our work, like us on Facebook or visit hollanducc.org.